And that's going to be our main text, but we are going to start with 1 Corinthians 15, a few verses. And every year, if a pastor's been a pastor for a long time, maybe 20, 25, 30 years, uh, you know, they, what, how do I make the resurrection fresh? Actually, it's so powerful that it bears repeating. You know, no pastor wants to come up and keep saying the same thing, and, you know, they want to try to put different aspects into the message to make it exciting and fresh. But this is something, this is the crux of what we believe, the resurrection. And just as we wouldn't take our spouses for granted and our children for granted, we shouldn't take the resurrection for granted. So we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians 15 first and start with verse 12. And the Apostle Paul says, And this is the the resurrection chapter, really. He devotes a whole chapter to this, as well as other portions in the scripture, as well as Jesus, as well as the other Bible writers. So if you go to a church that calls itself Christian, and the resurrection's a negotiable tenet, that's a real problem. Because they really have to surgically excise much of the scripture to not have the resurrection in their belief system. So he says, the same problem 2,000 years ago is the same problem today. And he's using some reasoning here with the Corinthian church. In verse 12, he says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? This has been an age-old problem from the time of the apostles. False doctrine would start to get into the church. And he says, but if, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Well, that's logical. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also vain. Because the atonement of Jesus and the fact that he did rise from the dead is the crux of what we believe. So there's no sense in preaching. There's no sense in asking people to come to church. There's no sense in having a faith and calling it Christianity if we don't believe in the resurrection. It makes absolutely no sense. And he goes on. Yes, and we, meaning the apostles and Christ's followers, are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ when he did not raise up. In fact, the dead do not rise. Okay, so he's even saying that it gets worse. For those that are preaching any form of Christianity, preaching the resurrection, preaching what Christ promised, if it didn't happen, then we're, we're worse than everybody else because now we're using our, our positions to manipulate people and lie to them. So it's a good argument that the Apostle Paul makes. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. He says it again, and you're still in your sins. That's powerful. Because if God promises us something and he reneges on one promise, we're all in a lot of trouble. Because if he reneges on one promise, well, how many other ones has he been untruthful about? So Paul's a, he's got a great mind and he, he Of course, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he makes this argument, and and it gets worse if there's no resurrection, verse 18. Then also, those who have fallen asleep, euphemistically, for those who have died in Christ, have perished. They're dead in their sins. They're in judgment. They're separated from God. And And in this life, only we have hope in Christ. We are all men the most pitiable. We're pathetic if that's the case. So the resurrection obviously is very important. Now, the first step to anything is belief. What do we believe? 
And I will tell you that whatever you believe will determine how you behave. It's a very simple equation. I'm going to use that a few times because behavior follows belief or faith. We will all live what we believe. It will come out in our lifestyle. It will come out in our personality. It will come out in who we are. Now, I want to challenge you this morning to see if you really believe this. And it's good to be challenged. The Bible is very clear that the Holy Spirit convinces us. The Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit challenges us. Some want to paint a real rosy picture of the third person of the Godhead. But the Holy Spirit does things to, to stretch us, to mature us, to make us better people. It's not just to comfort us. That's, a, that's one part of it. And I don't mean, you know, well, I believe this because I heard this in Sunday school or because I grew up in a Christian home. People change churches and different doctrines are thrown back and forth. So I do want to challenge you about what you believe because you will live what you believe. Now, we're going to use a few historical figures. We're going to look at a few people in the scripture. And then what we should do as we're going through this is ask, do I do that? Have I been guilty of that? Do I behave like they believe, behave based on what I believe? So we can make some parallels. People just like us, different time, different culture, different geography, people just like us. Now, I'm going to turn to Luke 24, and this is really where our main text is going to be. I'm not going to go through the, the whole chapter, but most of it. Luke 24. Verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, They said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember, we're going to come back to that, how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles, and their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Wow. This is the A-team. You know, these are the, the, the cream of the crop in the first century, the followers of Jesus. Certainly not a success story at the beginning. So number one, we're going to deal with the women. They come back to pay their respects. They're bringing certain spices. There's certain mixtures. Okay, and I submit to you that in those days, it was hot, it was, uh, the bacteria would multiply in the heat, and they weren't taking these things to put it on a live person. You didn't bring these spices to a live person. You brought it to someone who was dead. So their behavior tells you a little bit something about what they believe. Now, my wife is into herbs and potpourri and stuff, and sometimes it's overpowering. I walk into a room... <laughs> Babe, you know, it's a little much. I certainly wouldn't want all that stuff slapped on me. I'd probably be gagging, okay? Even when we go into the scripture and we look at Mary anointing the Lord with the spikenard, with that fragrant oil, Jesus said, some of you I see are potpourri fans with with the smiles, Um, but he, he said to those that were around them, 
him. He said that she has done this for my burial, that Mary actually believed that Jesus was going to die when the apostles weren't really buying it yet. They didn't want to believe it. So he said that she's done this for me for my burial, and this was not long before he actually died. So the women come, they get the spices, and they don't believe, as the men didn't, that he was risen from the dead. Now, they did see the stone rolled away, and each stone could be a few thousand pounds, and there would be leverage that would have to be used, and the soldiers would have to roll this thing in front of the opening, and then they would put a seal on it, a Roman seal. So the stone is rolled away, and they meet what they perceive as men. Remember, this is Dr. Luke writing this. He's very, you know, but if you compare this with Acts, it's the same thing. These men in shining garments, and then they, you know, they're supernatural, so, of course, what they're referring to is angels here. So they see the, the stone removed, which wasn't an easy feat. They see the angels, and they still don't believe. And Jesus said, remember how he spoke to you. Now, this is really interesting because we can say, well, I wasn't back there that then. And if Jesus said that to me, you know, I would have believed. Or, you know, we had Jesus right in the midst of us. I submit to you that God's word is Jesus's words. That's why he's called the Lagos. When we did that John study, John chapter one, he is the word. He is the mouthpiece of God. So he says, the angels say, remember how he spoke to you. What happens in life is we get off track. We know the word, we memorize the word, and then something happens, a crisis, and we start to get off track. And we need to hear the same thing. Remember how he spoke to you. Now, again, you may say, well, I didn't have Jesus right in front of me for the last year. But you have had his word right in front of you. And that's why he left it. And there's times that we do have to remember the word. And we do have to come back to the word. When things are going crazy and we're running around with our hair on fire, we need to remember what he spoke in his word. So let's go to the second group, the disciples. The women passed the torch to the disciples. Here you go, guys. Hey, this is what's happening. The stone is rolled away. We don't see him. There's angels. They give him all the evidence, and their response is, no way. It seems like idle tales. We can't believe it. We can't buy it. Isn't it amazing how the Lord is patient with us? These were his closest followers. They saw him raise people from the dead, and right now they're living in disbelief. I'm so glad that the Lord is patient and kind with me. He's very long-suffering. So this is what's going on. But when we don't take his teachings to heart, we're just as guilty as they are. And as an immature believer, I would ridicule the disciples or some in the Bible and say, gee, if I was there, that's just foolish talk. That's immaturity. But as we start to grow and mature in our faith, we say, gee, I might have done the same thing. We realize our own frailty, and that's why we need him. That's why it's a daily walk. Now, understand that it's one thing to be human, and we can say that. We can identify them and say, well, they're human. They messed up, so I can mess up. Be careful, because the disciples didn't remain in that mediocrity. They moved past it. They matured and, and grew from the situation. And today, some may think I'm going to say, well, you're ripping off the Lord. Well, I'll tell you this. The Lord is awesome. The Lord is good. The Lord knows his people. If we live in a mediocre faith, we're ripping ourselves off. We're hurting ourselves. However, there is that ability to break through that mediocrity and shallowness if we so desire. Jesus said, I have come to give them life. My followers, my disciples, those who have listened to me, those who have borne with me, those who have memorized my teaching. 
And I have come to give them that life more abundantly. And my question to you today is, do you believe that? You might have walked in today and maybe you've never been exposed. Maybe a relative dragged you kicking and screaming to come into this church today. Maybe they bribed you, you know, to come into church today. And they hope Pastor Joe preaches a message that's going to touch their heart. That's a possibility. But let me tell you something. He loves you as an individual. I look out here and I see a sea of faces. But each person who's listening to me is an individual that God loves. So I'm telling you that God loves you no matter where you came from. And you might not even be living it. You might be living a dysfunctional life because you just won't receive the fact that he loves you. But he does. And that's why he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. And for those of you that are believers, are you living? Is your lifestyle reflective of the fact that you believe that he wants you to have abundant life. And you may not be, but that's available to you. It's not a put down. It's for you to go home in private and to say, Lord, you know what? I want to believe what that guy said up there on that pulpit. I don't even remember his name, but I want that. Will you please, you know, will you please lead me in that direction? And he will. Verse 12. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. And he departed, marveling to himself as what had happened. Now, if you go into the Greek and you look at the semantic range of of each one of those Greek words, we could say that Peter was cautiously optimistic. Now, he thought, and so did the disciples, they thought. They were cold to the situation. They were maybe in shock. Their Lord was crucified a few days ago. Think about the the mindset of these followers. They put all their eggs in this basket and they see him nailed to a cross, probably crying out in pain, bleeding all over the place. But they forgot what Jesus told them what would happen. Peter was the one, I would die for you if they all leave you. You know, I'm going to be there. And he turned tail on, on him just like everybody else did. But he was cautiously optimistic. Have we ever been cautiously optimistic about the promises God makes to us? Maybe a personal application in our lives of these promises. Maybe saying that it won't happen for me. It hasn't happened for me. I'm looking around. I'm seeing other people blessed. But it's not happening for me. And we tend to take that and make a theology about that. That's bad theology. Two, have we ever boasted about our faith? And when the time came to produce... And to live out our faith, we blew it. This is what happened with Peter, and we'll get into that a little bit more. You see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to James Peter, uh, James and John and Peter, you got to pray with me. You got to stay awake with me. You know, Satan is going to sift you. Things are going to happen. You're going to be tempted. You guys got to stay awake and pray with me. He asked them three times, and every time he went back, they were sleeping. So they couldn't even stay up. You know, and I I don't know, maybe there wasn't coffee around or whatever the case may be. But here's the deal. Here's the rub. Peter was not prepared spiritually so that when the time came for Jesus to be arrested, what did Peter do? He did his best impression of Zorro, started swinging the sword, cutting off one of the ears of of the high priest's servant. Why? Because he wasn't prepared. He wasn't prepared spiritually, and then he had nothing to draw from. And I'll say this, that some of us may even come from a Christian home. We may be churchgoers. We may be staunch denominationalists, but we're not walking with him. We don't have that relationship. And then when there's a crisis, we fall apart because we have nothing to draw from. 
Belief determines behavior. And I'll say this, you show me with a person with a certain type of behavior, I'll tell you what they believe. And that's usually what gets me in trouble. It's my honesty. There's a certain behavior, there's a certain lifestyle, and I will tell you that that, that, that person's not completely sold on the resurrection. You see, a Savior dying and rising is transforming. Our Savior died. They, they killed him. He bled to death. They beat him. They nailed him to a cross. His body came down limp, lifeless. And then a few days later, he rises from the dead. That's unbelievable. And you might say, well, Jesus had the power to raise people from the dead. And we can look at the Old Testament and say, hey, some prophets in certain circumstances could raise others from the dead, but they couldn't do it for themselves. So the fact that our Savior rose from the dead, if we truly believe that, that's going to transform our lives and permeate every facet of our lifestyles. Right? Amen? Verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he, Jesus, said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? It's kind of cute, that banter back and forth. And they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified. They crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So the risen Lord, the resurrected Lord, interjects himself into a conversation of two of his followers, Cleopas being one of them. And he challenges their feelings. How many times have we allowed our feelings to determine our beliefs and our behaviors? Be careful with that one. Because when we're manic and feeling great, God loves me. When we're down in the dumps, God forgot about me. It's like the flower. He loves me, he loves me not. It's not, you can't do that, you know? The complaint of Cleopas is this, no, we're disappointed. Think about that. We were hoping he was going to redeem Israel. He did. He did. The first time it was a spiritual reformation. The second time it's going to be a physical kingdom restoration. But he did. And basically what he's saying is God didn't keep his promise. Oh, that Cleopas. Hmm. What about us? Have we ever lodged that complaint against God? Sure we have. Things didn't turn out the way I expected. I'm not feeling good about this situation. Why did God allow this to happen to me? When things get, go bad, it doesn't change his love for us. Now, I've been there. I've set out the tablecloth. I've set out the plates and the cake for my own pity party. Ready to invite my guests. 
And I complain to God, oh, why, Lord? Why does this happen to me? And a thought comes into my head. He's forsaken you. You're not really called, blah, blah, blah. And you know what? That's nonsense. You see, I know better than that. I don't, I don't linger long in it because I know the truth. The more you walk with him, the more you understand his word, the more you're, you're, you're experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, that pity party can't last long. It's a short party. All right, everybody go home. You see what I'm saying? The women came to us and told us, but we didn't believe. How insulting. <laughs> I mean, the evidence is mounting. So it was, it was something with the women, but it was even greater with the disciples. So the di- disciples or the followers, uh, they have the women's testimony. They have the empty tomb, the angels, the Lord's promises. And that wasn't enough evidence. But can we be just as guilty as these disciples? We read his word. And if we've been believers long enough, we've seen the miracles. If we're in some type of ministry, we've, we've been a partaker of these miracles, transformed lives. It's amazing stuff what God can do with people, right? So can't we be just as guilty? Yeah, they walked with him for three plus years, but we also have the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's needful that I go because when I go, I'm going to, the Holy Spirit's coming. And boy, where do you see what he does? Aggregately, you guys are going to do more than me because I'm confined to a, a one, one body. Wow. Is that possible? Yeah. The third person of the Godhead. But in times of crisis, Sometimes we're not willing to accept the bad as much as we accept the good. And I see this, and and I talk about this in marriage counseling, that when the pastor says, when you get married on your wedding day, he says, for better or for worse. Well, there's some seasons in your marriage where it's a lot of worse. Well, we must, maybe we're not right for each other. We fell out of love. We got to get divorced. No, it's for better or for worse. God's design is marriage. And when we're both submitted to the Lord, it does help us to bring things together. But we have to ride through those, those difficult times. We live in a society where if we're not immediately gratified, we give up. I'm not doing this anymore. Well, because something went bad. That's life. That's relationships. That's the human condition. It's not time to give up. It's time to hunker down and actually live what you've been taught for the last few years. That's important. 25. Then he said to them, oh, foolish ones. That's a very kind uh, translation from the Greek to the English. (laughs) Very kind. (laughs) Because I go into the Greek. And slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Exclamation point. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses, Jesus stops them. Let's start with Moses. And all the prophets must have been a very interesting conversation. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. I forgot about that one. So what he does is it says that he expounds to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Hey, guys, this was spoken about in the Old Testament. You know this stuff. You were taught it as little children. You memorized this stuff when you were in Hebrew school. And he goes and he expounds all of it to them. And this is the turning point. And what we see is a mild rebuke. Now, in our society... Rebuke, coddling. i got to tell you the truth. I like coddling better than rebuke. We all do. Our flesh loves coddling. And a lot of today's psychobabble is entrenched in coddling. You've got to love yourself. We love ourselves too darn much. You know, we've got to start loving others. Yeah, you're laughing. It's true. You've all been through this. And I've said this to many. 
Sometimes we need a little bit of a rebuke, and God rebukes me. Hey, Joe, you're a pastor. You should know better. All right, Lord, you, you're right. You got me. He's always right. You know, I can't win an argument against him. Always right. So that's only one person who's always right is God. The disciples should have known the truth. They were men of privilege. They walked with the Lord. They touched him. You know, John said, we've handled him. We've seen him. We've been with him. And there's things that we should know, too, because if you go to a Bible-believing church, it's eventually got to sink in and permeate into your lifestyle. Right? The priests were anointed. Right? Their, their foreheads, their, their fingers, their feet, their big toe, they, they, would, they would all be anointed. Where you walk, what you touch, what you do, what you say, what you think, it should reflect your, your education in the word of God. So this is what we have. In John 6, Peter said, when Jesus taught some hard things and a lot of his disciples left. Yeah, I, did, you know, did everybody know that? One of the best ministries on the planet, headed by Jesus, and a lot of his disciples walked away from this. We can't deal with this anymore. We're out of here. We don't like the things that you say. And, G- and Jesus said to Peter, are you going to leave me too? And he said, Lord, where will we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And the question is, do we believe that? Let's make the parallel. Now, do we know those words? Do we know his word? Vaguely, not sure. Do we know our football stats or how our stocks are doing or the lyrics to our favorite song or the plot of the Hunger Games and all that? You know, it was always something new. And we memorized that stuff. Entertainment. Lines in a famous movie. It is amazing what the mind and the brain will remember. Sometimes my wife and I, were in the morning, we're doing our thing, and I can hear her singing a song, because we're only two years apart, like a childhood song, and she starts it, and I start finishing the words. We, we, we know the words and the lyrics of nonsensical songs. Well, if we can do that, then we can meditate on God's word, can't we? We should be finishing each other's sentences when we want to encourage each other. Finish the rest of that scripture that you heard. So this is what we're dealing with. And I've got to tell you that um, some, some get annoyed with God. Some come into my office and they're annoyed. They feel like he's done something wrong. But here's the deal. If all this other stuff is in first place and you have a nice second place pedestal for God and say, you know what, Lord, you didn't get the gold, but you got the silver. This is a really nice place. I really want to put all these things ahead of you. Money, relationships, bonds, whatever the case may be. Don't be surprised when you come back to that pedestal and he's missing. Because God will not take second place in our life. Very important. Amen. So that's what we have. Verse 28. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, abide with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? What just happened here? Well, things are on the uptick at this point of the scripture. He refreshed them. And we are also refreshed by him as the Lagos in his words. 
And this is where the solution comes. And he says, they say, did not our hearts burn while he talked with us and opened the scripture? Now, in the Greek, the word for burn is a lot more ferocious. It means to be set on fire, to be consumed. I mean, these guys were like, whoa. It wasn't just his presence. It was the fact that he started going into the scripture. And they went from their funk and their haze back into truth because he brought them back into reality with the scripture. And I got to ask you this morning, when you read this passage, does your heart burn? Or do you just have heartburn from your egg breakfast that was rushed this morning? You know? So apparently if you've had some eggs and sausage and stuff. But my heart burns. My heart is on fire because of the Lord. This stuff never gets old to me. And I've got to ask you, what lights your fire? Is it the things of the world? Is it that it's a beautiful day and I'm going to do recreation or I'm going to put a, a, a boat in the water or play golf? I mean, I don't even know if you can play golf on Easter. But is that what makes your heart burn? Or is it the eternal? Is it the things of God? It should be the, the, the latter. Why are we here today to be entertained, inspired, um, a desire, or a desire for a relationship with our Creator Father? There's a passage in John 14 where Jesus says, John 14 and 15 are two of the most powerful portions of Scripture, those two chapters in the Bible. And Jesus puts the whole world into two categories. Let me just tell you first what the media puts the world in. You're either black or you're white. You're Republican or you're Democrat. You're of the 1% or of the 99%. You're rich or you're poor. That's just, that's just confusion. Put that away. Jesus puts the world into two categories. Those who love me, and there's a litmus test for if you love Jesus and those who don't. I got news for you. Everybody in here should want to be in the category of those that love him. Because the ones that don't, he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. When he separates the wheat from the tares. Now here's the litmus test. How do we know if we love him? Jesus says very clearly, those that follow my word. Well, number one, we have to know his word to follow it. And listen, if you're a brand new believer and you don't know much of the scripture, don't panic. God's going to bring you up slowly in this stuff. He's going he's to feed you the baby food first. And then when your teeth grow and your spiritual teeth, he's going to give you the meat that you can chew and you can digest. But what he's going to ask you is if you love his word. No matter what's going on in your life, will you fall back on the word? Right? So I want to be in that category, the one that loves him based on the fact that I follow his word, but I have to know the word first before I can follow the word. So what is your desire here today? Is it, is it to have a relationship with your creator? It's available. Now here's the rest of the story. Jesus appears to all his disciples. He refreshes them. He, again, he reiterates the importance of scripture. We see that in verse 44. And this loosely bit band of fearful, skeptical followers eventually start to thaw out, start to warm up, to have the proof of the resurrection, and they go from scared, hiding people to those that have transformed the world. So that's, that's the rest of the story. Now this chapter starts out with Christ's followers living as if the resurrection never took place, not unlike some churchgoers. Again, we can be in church for all the wrong reasons. If we call ourselves Christians, are we living life as usual, without the Lord, without purpose, maybe disobedient, maybe our lifestyle is antithetical to what we've been reading for the last few years? See, behavior always follows belief. If I say I'm a believer, but I'm not sold on the resurrection, my actions and my behavior will follow this. 
Right? When I don't make time to read the Bible, it's not a priority. When prayer only comes when I'm in trouble. You know, I'm trying to teach my son is 12, trying to give him these concepts as he grows. And he'll, something will be wrong, and, and I'll say, you know, you, son, you can't just pray when things are, are bad. Because he'll go in his room and say, well, Daddy, I just prayed, and I'm not better yet. <laughs> Babe, you've got you've to know him. You've got to walk with him. You know, you have to have that relationship. You can't ride mom and dad's uh, coat strings into, into the kingdom. When fellowship and study of the Bible in church is the last thing, the last thing on the to-do list, the last priority. When fruit or service to the Lord and good works is non-existent in our lives. If that characterizes us as Christians, we're living as if we don't believe that the resurrection is true. Now, some of you are probably saying right now, Man, he's a little crusty. I should have gone to the first service. <laughs> but I can assure you, Pastor Mike is very, and all the pastors here, have the same passion, the same desire to tell you the truth about what God's word says. It is a mirror. We see a reflection. And sometimes we don't look so good. Are pastors getting caught up in gimmicks to win the lost? Begging, entertaining. I will tell you this, I won't do anything to win the lost. Now, some of you who know me say, that's not in, in character for you, Pastor Joe. I won't do anything. You know what I'll do? I almost will do everything, but will I'll stop. Where I will stop is lowering myself or lowering God's gospel to the point where everyone's happy with it. That's doing him a disservice. And I'll tell you this, you may have political connections in the state of New Jersey. You may have way more money and power than me. You may be more popular. You may be more successful than me. And you may look at me and say, oh, pastor of a medium-sized church. But I will look at you, and if that's not attractive to you, I feel sorry for you. Don't pity me. I feel sorry for you. I mean, if you've read in the paper, Thomas Kincaid, everybody loves his paintings. All these beautiful scenes, put scripture on them. You know, I don't know if he's saved or not. It seems that he was, but you know, I didn't know the man. 54 years old, I bet he's got a whole lot of money in that bank. He's gone. That money can't go with him. Maybe he had plans to do something when he was 60 or 70 or retirement or spend time with his great-grandchildren. He's gone. People are dying left and right, and they're dying in a Christless eternity, right? Right? So the point I'm trying to make is, is that if you don't see salvation and all the blessings that God has given you, if you don't see the fact that he wants to give you his Holy Spirit, a part of him, to impart to you, to reside in your heart, if you don't see that as valuable, I can't help you. I, and I'm not going to beg you. And I pity you. And I will pray for you because I do pray for the lost. That's one of the things I do regularly in life is pray for the lost. Because if you die without Christ, without your resurrected Savior, it's not good. Daniel 12 tells us clearly in the Old Testament, I love to show this to my Jewish friends, that everyone will be resurrected. Some will be to everlasting shame and content. Everlasting means it does not end. And others to everlasting life. And that's it. You're either a wheat or you're the tear. Okay? But a leopard can change his spots when he's transformed or she is transformed by God's word. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, it is appointed to man to die once, and then the judgment. Death will come for every one of us, and so will resurrection. But the question is, where will you spend eternity when you are resurrected? So my desire for us, brothers and sisters, is number one, to believe what God says in his word. Number two, to be refreshed by the word. 
as the Emmaus travelers were. So we don't have Jesus tangibly here with us, but we do have him in the word, and we have the Holy Spirit that he left for us to guide us through our lives. Three, for our behavior to start following true belief. We don't want false conversions. I'm not going to convince you into the kingdom. It's got to be from your heart. You've got to desire it. Four, as a result, to start living the victorious Christian life. And five, to have that life that Jesus promised and have it more abundantly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know your word is good. We know that Romans 10, 17 tells us that the word actually has the power as those read it and they wonder. They're starting to feel things. They're starting to think things. There's starting to be a war within them and they don't understand while they're sitting in the pews why that is. And the truth is because you're still...